If you would all please stand, we're going to be in Isaiah 52. We'll turn our corner now. We're looking at three verses. That's all we're going to look at. I think that that's all we have time for today. Um, We're going to start in verse 13. We're going to read down to the end of the chapter. Isaiah records for us, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. This is God's word. You may be seated. Father, open up the book for us this morning. Help us to see the things that we need to see. Show us ourselves this morning, Lord, and show us our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Before I get into what we have to, I would just like to, without any kind of embarrassment, congratulate Ava and our newest mom. I noticed that she's here today, and Patty, who has her her great-grandson. just want to thank you. Quiet clap, quiet clap. <laughs> Wanted to take the time to do that before we get into our message. Titled it this week, um, Echoes and Shadows. I wrestled through this, as I always do with these types of texts, and I wondered not what direction to go, but what direction not to go. I had to wrestle this through with my wife. I wrestled this through with Pastor Jonah. Um, There's just so much here that you could tackle and talk about in the time that we have. Um, I didn't want to just sit here and give a whole bunch of texts that help us understand this text. That really kind of defeats the purpose. So I had to settle this out. And again, the title I gave it was Echoes and Shadows. Echoes and Shadows. And there's a reason for that, and that'll show itself as we go on. And thinking about texts like this, when we get into these types of things, we have the rest of the story. We know the end game because we've got the New Testament. We know what that looks like. So we look back at the Old Testament and we read these texts and what do we see? We see Jesus. It's easy for us if we know who he is. We just look at that and don't understand why anybody doesn't see Jesus. But that's not what's going on, you see, because for Isaiah, the prophet, right in the midst of all of these things, is seeing this servant in the shadows of a future vision that he has an understanding enough about to write about, but he doesn't really know who this fellow is. Because this is happening down the long, long lane of history as he looks forward and God opens up the door for him to see the victory of God. But he sees the victory of God in a way that doesn't make any sense. And this is why it is, it's good for us to take a look at this, thinking that we don't have the rest of the story and walking ourselves through this. Lent was and is a time within the church, and it has been for a long time within the calendar, set aside for us so that we can reflect Put aside who actually does it and who doesn't do it and all that stuff. It's set aside for us to be able to reflect, for us to be able to pray, to be able to step back and to ponder the things that God is doing in our lives and has done throughout the past year and what it is he continues to do. To look at the events of the Bible and what it records for us about this Jesus of Nazareth, it's a good time to just carve out six weeks and change your routines and ask yourselves the questions about who Jesus is. 
See, Lent and Advent both, that's what the liturgical calendar circles around. Lent and Advent both are intentional in their focus. It's not scattered. It's very intentional in what we do. Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? That's the deep question that we tackle here. Why did he come to us? What was the purpose for him being here? What is the story that God is telling us in and through the scriptures about ourselves and about his love that he displayed through this carpenter from Nazareth for every human being? And who the Bible tells us is this son of God. These are all questions that we ought to take time to just step back, change up our routine and dig into this and be very prayerful. You see, because Isaiah turns a corner in his writings here at the end of chapter 52, and it's a very somber and it's a very difficult passage as he's given the vision or the shadows of something that's going to happen some 700 plus years in the future of when it is he's writing this in Jerusalem. It's difficult because what Isaiah sees as he stands on his proverbial tiptoes and looks down the corridors of time, what he sees happening all at once is the wrath of God being poured out upon somebody. The judgment of God coming to pass and at the same time, the victory of God all at once happening in this vision that God is pouring out for him that Isaiah is writing down on the parchments. And as we journey closer to Good Friday and Easter and we take a look at these things, we need to see in this painful story the divine love of God in the midst of what is going on here in the rest of Isaiah 52 and then all the way through Isaiah 53. And it's a strange way to look at this passage of Scripture, most especially because of the way the world looks at it. So it is a little strange, isn't it? When we go here and we go, oh, this is God's divine love. But that is exactly what's happening here. What's being poured out for us is God's divine love. And I want to challenge you to use your imagination. That's the goal as we take a look at this text and as we look at the rest of these for the next three weeks. Try and figure out a way that you can look at this as though you don't know the story of who Jesus is. As if you've just opened up your Bible and you've read these texts for the very first time and you have no idea what this prophet Isaiah is talking about. Perhaps even you could put yourself in your mind's eye in the position of somebody who was in Isaiah's day who all of a sudden Isaiah brings this text forth in the temple and it gets read. What would you think about what it is he's saying? It's almost cryptic as we try and sort this passage out. How does this look? You see, divine faith divine trust, both come to mind. We have to have faith in the God who has called us and we have to trust that he has got our best interest at heart and that the story that's being unfolded is for our benefit. Abraham comes to mind, at least for me in the way my mind works. And I'll work that out. Because through Isaiah, God has commanded his people to rejoice. We've learned that over the last couple of weeks. To clean themselves up, to pull yourself out of the dust, to put on the right clothes, to be holy because I'm holy. Do the things that you're supposed to do because you're my people. He's their rear guard and he's the one that goes before them last week. The land that he has put them in and their salvation belongs to them because of the work that God has done for them up to this point. See, he's taken away his wrath, we remember the very first week. Something that's hard for us to get our hands around because we've got to sort all that out. But I still don't get the uh, Abraham thing in the midst of all of this. We'll be patient, we'll get there. We'll get there. Genesis 15, it was our first reading this morning. That's why I took the time to read the first 21 verses there. Moses gives us a really strange story. 
It's kind of bizarre, actually. It's the covenant of Abraham, or Abram as he was known at that time in Genesis 15. It's the covenant that God makes with him. We find Abram completely worried because he still has yet to have a son of his own, and yet God has promised that he is going to be blessed through his kids and his offspring are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. But all he has at this moment is a distant family relative and some servants in his house to leave his stuff to. So Abram does what every human being does. He gets a little worried because the plan of God is not moving as quick as he think it ought to and it's not working itself out the way it should but God encourages him against that way of thinking he says to him that his promises are true even if they are a long time in coming again oak trees these will blossom at some point it will take some years but it'll happen God's promises are true even if they're a long time in coming don't worry don't worry Abram Your descendants will be as many as the stars in the sky because I told you that's the way it's going to be. And again, Abram, who was always held out as our example, believed God even though it still hadn't happened yet. Genesis 15, 6 says, He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. He counted it to him as righteousness. You see, something weird happens next, though, at least for us today, as we unfold this particular chapter. It's a little bit bizarre. God tells Abram to get a bunch of animals and birds for a sacrifice and cut the animals in half. Well, that's strange. We don't do that today. Why are we talking about that? Well, you're right. It's really weird. We don't do that. It's not how things work, but it's important for us to understand what's going on here. Because he tells them to cut the animals in half. He doesn't do that with the birds. But then he says, put one half over here and one half over here. That's what the Bible's telling us. Set it up in such a way that there's like a path going right down the middle of these two animals or however many it is that you've sacrificed. It's pretty weird if you've never heard the story and you don't understand what's going on in the Bible. But you see, if you study ancient Near Eastern history, that's how they made contracts. That's how covenant promises were sealed in the days of Abraham and in the time that we call the ancient Near East. Two parties would get together, usually the vassal king who oversaw all the people and somebody who was a subject of that vassal king. And they would make a covenant promise to one another. And this is how they would seal the deal. You see, the vassal would offer promise and protection while the subject promised loyalty and devotion. And they would cut the covenant, they would call it. They would then walk through the sacrifices together with half on this side and half on that side. It's weird, I get it. It's really strange. But that's how they sealed things. It's what they did. It's a very clear and a powerful reminder for each party that walked down the center of those two offerings that if you have an obligation to the other and you fail to meet that obligation, that you would suffer the consequences of the animals that were sacrificed at the time that you made this contract. Strange, yep. Bizarre, yep. Somber, absolutely. Merciless, without doubt. But that's how you sealed the deal. That's how covenant promises were made. And that's why when we go into Genesis 15, verses 17 and 20 or so, through 20 are so important for us in this chapter. At this point, I'm sure everybody is sitting here going, we're talking about Easter, we're talking about Isaiah 52. What are you on about? What are you talking about in Genesis? Well, take a look at verse 12 and verse 17. I'm going somewhere with this. It'll unfold. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. You need to remember, Abram was asleep. 
So he didn't partake of what was going on in verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. If we're not slow enough to look through this, what we have happening here is the sealing of this particular covenant that God made with Abram was done without Abram. Abram was sleeping. In the symbol of the pot and the flaming torch that passed between the pieces, God alone walked that road down the middle of those sacrifices while Abram was sleeping. We miss this because it's weird and because it makes no sense. We think, okay, this is the covenant God made with Abram. We're going to move on. I get that. But what God did here by walking through the sacrifices alone was to say that this covenant promise that I am making will be fulfilled. And even if you or your descendants fail to keep your end of the deal, I will pay your consequences for your failure. That's what's going on. Abram wasn't required to walk through the sacrifices because God said that even if you fail, I will take the punishment. See, God made this covenant knowing that Abram, neither he nor his descendants or any of us on earth would ever be able to keep up our end of any deal that we would make with God. That's why this covenant was made. You see, he doesn't demand the justice required for that failure to come upon us. This covenant tells us that he himself will bear the punishment for anything that we deserve. All the way back in Genesis chapter 15. See, and this is unfolding here in Isaiah because that's divine love. That's divine grace. That's what's going on in Genesis 15. Years and years and years before Isaiah even gets this picture painted. It's one of the hardest parts of the Bible now that we're back in Isaiah to really understand in the sense of why would God do this to this person who we don't know yet, even though we know. Why would God do this to this person? It's seen in Isaiah when he writes about this servant that he's struggling with it. But we need to remember 51.22. We looked at that every week so far in Lent. It's important. Thus says the Lord, the Lord your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering. The bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. So he sets the stage at the end of chapter 51 that God is taking his wrath away from his people. And then he goes to the front end of chapter 52 and says, I'm giving you joy. I'm giving you freedom. I'm giving you all of the things that you don't deserve. But we learned what? That he's taken his wrath from us, but it has to go somewhere. It doesn't just evaporate into thin air. He's made the choice not to pour his wrath out upon his people, but it has to go somewhere. And just as he promised Abram that it would go somewhere, he will take it where? Upon himself. Upon himself. With that in mind, we can go and we can take a look at these chapters here and we can begin to understand what it is God is doing within the scriptures. He's going to take it upon himself so humanity doesn't have to. You see, God the Son, this Jesus, this mystery servant whom we know, that is where the wrath of God is going to be poured out. Alec Mater in his, his Isaiah by the day devotional commentary says this. Consider, therefore, the love that draws salvation's plan. Finding pleasure in sending the beloved Son. Finding pleasure, too, when by the carefully planned intentions and foreknowledge of God, that's Acts 2.23, he was, quotes, delivered into lawless hands to crucify and put to death. No. 
That is a love beyond our possibility to, of experience. That's a love beyond our ability of experience. And yet, John says in his first letter, 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10, and then verse 14, that this is what love is. He loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This wasn't plan B. This was exactly what God had planned from the outset because he knew we would never be able to get it right. So the wrath that God has, he decides it needs to go somewhere. It's going to go upon himself. You see, echoes of the past here, the Exodus promises we talked about last week, the covenant promises that you see with Abram here, these are all echoes that are ringing in the head of Isaiah and the shadows of what is to come. And that's what Isaiah has for us. Again, as he stands on his tiptoes and he looks down the long corridor into the future as a prophet and he writes these things down, behold, my servant shall act wisely and he shall be high and lifted up and he shall be exalted. Oh, what does that look like? See, ultimately, where do our minds go because we know the end of the story? Where do our minds go? They go right to the victory and the resurrection of Jesus, don't they? They go to the ascension of Jesus in Acts chapter 1. And that is rightly so to do. But we see that in Daniel and we see it in Paul. Daniel says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's an awesome text. We like those victory texts, don't we? Those are good. Paul says, therefore God highly exalted him in Philippians chapter 2 and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Those are great texts. We love those texts. And that thinking to go to that victory spot right off the bat when we read Isaiah verse 13 in chapter 52, that is not incorrect thinking because we always want the ultimate victory of Jesus before us. But it most certainly is incomplete thinking. It's incomplete thinking because that's not what Isaiah is seeing here. Not right now anyway. That's not what he's seeing we always have to be careful not to skip over the suffering and the struggle. We like to do that. As a Gen Xer myself, we like the easy road. You know, we didn't earn the life of leisure that the, the baby boomer generation blessed us with. We stepped into that. So we don't like the whole suffering piece and the not feeling well and the, all of that business. We like going right to the end game, to victory. We can't do that. We don't want to go right to that place and miss out on the suffering or struggling. I know that that sounds weird because that's what's going on in this story and that's what will go on. If we want the victory without this, this will make no sense. In our lives as well, we can easily get ourselves in a place where we think that because we're suffering, because we're struggling, because we're sick, because we have long-term illnesses and pains or whatever is in our lives because of some of the poor teaching that comes out of the pulpits across this country and this world, that somehow our faith is weak. That somehow we're missing the mark. We need to try harder. It's not the case. Nothing we do could please God more except simple obedience. You see, we are promised that because of the price Jesus paid for us, that he would be with us through all of the suffering that we will endure. 
that we will deal with, whatever it may be, whatever sickness it may be, that he will be our peace in it all. That's chapter 53. That we can be overcome by the peace of Christ that surpasses all understanding no matter what's going on in our life. You see, we have to remember that before the ascension is the crucifixion. Before the ascension is the crucifixion. We cannot have the kingdom without the cross. To have one without the other is wrong. N.T. Wright would say this, to separate the two is to do a disservice to the scriptures and the entire service and story of God. We cannot have just the cross because that is merciless. We cannot have just the kingdom and its victory without the pain that it took to get there. You have to have both to have the complete story that God is putting out for us here. And it's clear that Isaiah is seeing not victory, but horror. Now, these are hard texts. I I get that. And sometimes it's fun to study the scriptures and just be real happy about what it is the Lord's doing for us. But when we come upon Easter and we take a look at the text that we need to look to describe what's going on, Isaiah is not doing a happy dance and seeing victory. It's utter horror. That's why we have verse 14. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. That's a terrible verse. That's a terrible verse. And it's a painful turn that Isaiah is is making here as he takes us away from the freedom that he promises us and all of the things that we're going to have in the victory of Christ. But before we can get there, we've got to walk through this. That painful turn, that awful road that takes us up Calvary's way that has to happen in order for us to get where we are going to be allowed to go. Why? Because God's wrath has to go somewhere. It has to go somewhere. He's removed it from humanity, but it has to go somewhere. Divine justice and divine love demand that that happens. God could not be God if he just let it go away. But you see, when God made that covenant with Abram, and in fact, when he made the covenant with Adam and Eve as well, when he made those covenants, he knew humanity could never hold up our end of the deal. He knew from the outset, we will not be able to do it, that we would absolutely fail at every turn. Also, that we would never bear up under the penalty even if we got close to the finish line. Once that penalty was poured out, we'd be done for. So I say to people, look, if God was going to pour out his wrath on every human being right now, each of us would be a crater before we got home. But as it is, we are under grace. We are under grace. You see, that's why he walked the path himself. That's why he cut the covenant with Abram himself. That's why his son, Jesus, would walk the road to Calvary himself. Only Jesus could take the punishment that was meant for us and come through on the other side in order that we can receive the victory that we don't deserve. All of that is important for us to know. You see, Mater again, the thought of Isaiah is that his suffering left him more damaged than any other had been. Can you imagine Isaiah looking at this picture? Again, put yourself in that place. 
somber text, I get it, but just put yourself in that place for a minute. The thought of Isaiah is that his suffering, whoever this is, left him more damaged than any other had been, and indeed prompted the question whether what remained could even be human. This is what Isaiah is seeing. Now let that sink in. Just let that sink in. God's righteousness demands justice. And there will be absolutely no hope for humanity, for you or for me or for anybody else, if we had to go before his judgment seat on our own. We would be without hope. That's the story. Were it not for the blood that was shed on Calvary's hill, humanity would still be lost. It's the only way. It is the only way. I know this isn't a pleasant Good Friday picture that's being painted for us here, but you see, this verse or vision that Isaiah had had to completely unsettle him as he was given a glimpse of the shadows of what was to come. Could you imagine being that prophet writing this stuff down, trying to sort this out? It's not all happy cakes and unicorns and all kinds of things somewhere God's wrath had to go and it goes on this servant you see the wrath of God this is what struck me this week the wrath of God being poured out here through the hands of humanity and rebellion against the very God dying there to save them that is the divine act of love let me read that again because if you don't remember anything else try to remember this When it comes to the cross of Christ, this picture that's being painted here by Isaiah, the wrath of God being poured out here through the hands of humanity in rebellion against the very God who was dying there to save them. That is the divine act of love. N.T. Wright says, the biblical promises of redemption have to do with God himself acting because of his unchanging, unshakable love for his people. That's the God that we serve. He's not some malevolent dictator who wants to make everyone's life miserable. We see it in Abram's story. We see it in Adam and Eve's story. You see, it is nothing that we could ever do, ever do. But all that he has done for us, divine love, absolute grace, All of it is here. Love absorbed at that moment in time, the full brunt of hate. All that this rebellious world could pour out upon, all that this rebellious world could offer up, all the things that Satan had that he could throw at the Son of God himself at that moment in time on Calvary's hill, every single bit that he could do, he fired. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. That's God's love. Now, why did he do that? Well, verse 15 starts to turn a corner again, if even for a moment. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. That the world may know. That the world may know what 
has been done on their behalf. Whether they deserve it or they don't, that the world may know. The promises to Abram, those echoes of the past and God's story for his people, that your offspring will be as many as the stars in the sky if you could ever count them. That covenant was a faith covenant. Because Abram didn't see the promises of God fulfilled, but he knew that God would fulfill them nonetheless. He believed God without seeing the end. He knew that God would bring it to pass. No matter what, because God said that he would. We, by that same exact faith, thousands of years on, are sons and daughters of that very promise that says that no matter what you do, he's already taken care of it for you. Is this how we tell the story? Is this how we tell the story? Because Jesus fulfilling the old covenant was giving us what? A brand new covenant in his blood. He fulfilled the old covenant, took every letter of the law. He walked that road. He was the perfect Israelite, the perfect human being, letting the world know that it could have been done because he did it, because he did it. And he gave us a brand new covenant in his blood. Why? Because of his complete obedience and divine love. Habakkuk 2.4, and we will get there sometime this summer. The righteous shall live by his faith. That's what Habakkuk tells us. So we stand in the faith that Jesus had that God the Father was going to finish this right to the end. And that's why he was obedient to death. Because he knows God is faithful. He knows God is faithful. So let's close with these verses from Paul's letter to Philippi. These are the verses that come before the victory and ascension ones that we read earlier on. And I want you to listen to these because this is as important as the last three. Have this in mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. And he didn't leave himself empty. He filled himself by taking the form of a servant. He just didn't empty himself of divine glory and walk around as a bag of bones. He took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the story. It's the beginnings of the story. He becomes our example of divine love, divine grace. The worship team could come up, please. See, this is the unfolding story of God that Isaiah is giving to us. This is what we have before us. I want to encourage you just in a couple of ways. I want to encourage you first to step into the promises that he has for you because they've already been paid for. Step into the promises that he has for you because they've already been paid for. And understand, yeah, this is a somber and hard text. It will be as we continue to unfold chapter 53. But let's be real. Stop hiding stuff under the rug and hoping that we can feel good and everything's all wonderful and great. 
The thing that unsettles me the most, not just as a pastor, but as a human being, is that I read these texts and I know my heart. I don't deserve any of this. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe you do. I don't. And I take far too lightly, far too often, the price that was paid for me. And I think, frankly, most of us do. Even if we don't intend to, we take far too lightly, far too often, the price that was paid for us. We want comfort. We want joy. We want victory. We want the race run and done before we even get out of the starting gate without understanding that that's not the road that God calls us to. He has for you divine victory already secured. The challenge for you is will you step into that divine victory that he has already secured? Or are we going to continue to walk and wrestle in the ways of the world and try to figure things out that way? Let's stand. Those who could pray, you could please take your places. I don't know where your hearts are at. It's really of no, no consequence to me. It is to you, though. You know where you're standing before the Lord at this moment in time whether you're standing before him or not at all. There will be a day when we will all stand before him. Do we want to stand before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords covered in the blood? Redeemed? So that when we go against the bar of justice before God the Father in heaven, we have Jesus standing next to us and he looks at God the Father when he's ready to pass judgment and Jesus says, no, he's mine. She's mine, paid for. Are you walking that way? Have you made that decision? That's something you need to bring before the Lord. And there are people here who are willing to pray with you in relation to that. There's no big scenes. There's no fancy prayer. There's nothing. There's just a humility that goes before the Lord that says, I don't have that yet, Father, but I want it. If that's you and there's a tug in your heart this morning, that is the Holy Spirit. Because the Word says that we can only be drawn to Him if the Holy Spirit draws us. And today, if you hear that voice, don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. I would challenge you, step out. If you're already in Christ and you're having a hard time getting your hands around the truth of what this text says, that in Him you have already been completely redeemed. There's nothing more you could ever do that would make God love you more or less. And you're struggling with that today. Or you feel other people look at you in a way that just causes you to struggle. Get prayer. There's people in the back and in the front. Let us pray with you. Bring those requests before the Lord. Allow Him to hear your prayer. just close in one last song. Father, I just pray that you would stir our hearts. You would give us the courage to step out. The altar is open for anybody who just simply wants to come up and just rest in the presence of the Lord as we sing this last song. I would encourage you to do so, in fact.
Just take some time before the Lord this morning as we just close. Father, I pray that you would stir our hearts. May we give over to you those things that we hold on to so tightly that separate us from you. May we understand the price that was paid for us, the fact that Jesus did everything for us. All we need to do is step into that truth. The divine love and the divine grace that is poured out upon us is undeserved but freely given. Help us walk in that today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh